You guys watching the Olympics? Gosh, it's so much fun. Yeah, Becky is definitely watching the Olympics. I've never seen someone so hyped about the Olympics as Becky is. So she definitely is. Okay, yesterday, Red Gerard won a gold medal. And a lot of you are like, I don't know who that is. All right, so here is who that is. He is a 17-year-old American snowboarder. He, he's like, like the freshmen in college think this kid is young. Like he, he's just, he's literally weighs 115 pounds. He's baby face and he just won a gold medal and his reaction was like uh, just confusion. Like he wasn't excited. He was just kind of looking around like, I uh, don't know what to do. And man, that's what we love about the Olympics, isn't it? Like what we, okay, we kind of talk about why we love the Olympics because we want to be patriotic, wave our little American flags or because, you know, we like the peace that it brings with all of these countries coming together. Okay, maybe some of you are actually that genuine-hearted, but I'm not. And so what we actually love about the Olympics is the stories and, and the moment, right? And we want to get, like, caught up in that moment where someone's achieving something, right? And, and little kids get this. You, what did you want to be when you grew up as a little kid? Remember that? You got asked that question all the time, and, and you got to love kids. They're ambitious. It's like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Everybody's like, I'm going to be an astronaut. All right, good luck with that, kid. Um, yeah, oh, it's fine. You, you know it's true. It's probably not going to happen. Um, but here, okay, I was in on this. Here's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be Tiger Woods. And, and some of you are like, that's, that's not the best role model Okay, I'm not saying it is, but that's, that's just who I wanted to be. And I was going to rise up, and I was going to beat Tiger Woods in the Masters. And it's still coming. It's going to happen, all right? We're still going for it. But I remember watching Tiger play in, in the Masters as a kid. And you're thinking, golf's lame, Jordan. I don't know if you know this. Okay, but golf on Sunday at the Masters is amazing. Give it a shot sometime. Hannah's pumped up in the back. I appreciate the support, Hannah. So I would be watching Tiger, and I'd be hearing these roars kind of coming through the pines at Augusta and watching this, and I, and I would say that I'd have to go to the bathroom, and actually what I would do is I'd go in the bathroom, and in the mirror, I'd practice my Tiger fist pumps. So like the step and then the pump, you know, and I'd, I'd kind of look like, all right, right angle, you know, like, why? Why did I want that? Why did I want to kind of raise up and beat Tiger? Because... We all want to be a part of greatness. There's something in the human heart that's naturally attracted to greatness. And we want to create it ourselves. We want to be great. Now, here's the thing. Part of the reason why I wanted to be Tiger Woods is because I didn't understand what true greatness was. Right? So all of the years that I spent watching Tiger Woods on the golf course, what I didn't realize is that real greatness was happening, but it wasn't coming from Tiger Woods. It was coming from his caddy. So all the years that I watched him, I never actually paid attention to the caddy and how he was taking the clubs out and cleaning them and kind of getting them to Tiger, how he would go out ahead of time and kind of figure out the layout of the greens so that he could serve and support what was happening. And here's what, here's what I'm getting at is that Jesus' definition of greatness flips our understanding of what it is on its head. It's an upside-down kingdom where Jesus says greatness isn't self-promotion, it's service. 
It's the kingdom where the way to go up is to go down. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And so we're in, we're in Mark 9. We're gonna, it's actually a fairly short section. We're going to start in verse 30 and just go through 37. So here's the, here's the first section, Mark 9, 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So he predicts his death and resurrection for the second time in a couple chapters. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So Jesus reveals what type of Messiah he's going to be, a suffering Messiah. And the disciples are confused. Why? Well, Jesus claims that phrase, the Son of Man. And as Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, they would have thought about a couple different Old Testament texts But I want to read the primary one to you to give you a little bit of context of their understanding of who this Messiah, this coming Savior was. So Daniel 7 is what would have been in the heads of the disciples as they heard Jesus claim to be the Son of Man. And this is what Daniel 7 says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So they have this picture of this kind of glorious conquering Messiah, and they knew that as followers of that Messiah, that's what they were going to be like. They wanted a glorious conquering Messiah because they wanted to be glorious conquering Christians. And this is true about Jesus, this is who he is, but they missed that it's not all of who Jesus is. And so they were confused when this this glorious Messiah of Daniel 7 said that he was going to be the suffering Messiah, that he was going to come and that he was going to die. So how can those two things come together? Okay, look back at, at Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. My question is, who is going to deliver him? Who's going to deliver him over into the hands of men? God. God the Father delivered his son into the hands of men to be killed. Why? Because God wants greatness for his son. He wants glory for his son. And what real greatness is, is actually self sacrificial service. Jesus was great because he suffered and served, not in spite of it. And that's what he wants for us. So let's look into this. What is true greatness? He's going to pull in his disciples and have this kind of moment with them, and he's going to explain it to them. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they don't, they don't respond, listen why. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Okay, do you see the dark irony of what is happening here? Disciples, they're at it again. Jesus has literally just said that he's about to suffer and die. And you know what the disciples are doing on the road? 
They're arguing about who the best is. It's probably because they just went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, James, and John got to go and they probably came down all puffed up and they're strutting their stuff and they're talking about how they saw Jesus transfigured and then the other disciples are like, yeah, well, we almost cast out a demon. We couldn't really do it, but we tried. And they're having this argument about who the greatest is and Jesus is kind of walking up ahead and they think that he doesn't really know what's going on. You would think they would figure that out by now. Jesus kind of knows stuff. But they're arguing about who the greatest is, and then they get caught. And, and, and so Jesus kind of hesitates and waits till they're kind of in this house alone. And then Jesus goes, hey, so what were you guys talking about on the road? They're like, uh-oh, he knows. You guys remember the Wizard of Oz? Of course you remember the Wizard of Oz. Everybody remembers the Wizard of Oz. Okay, Wizard of Oz, right? So throughout the movie, they are excited to go see the Wizard of Oz, this great and powerful wizard, right? And they, they walk into this like weird like throne room type place. And then remember there's this kind of floating green head that's the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. And there's like lightning bolts and all this stuff happening. And they're, they're afraid, right? They're, they've encountered power. They've encountered greatness. And then what happens? Toto the dog walks over and pulls pulls on this little like curtain and unveils this like frail old little man that is like speaking into a microphone and like turning this crank thing to create the wizard. And they find out that the wizard wasn't actually as great as he was trying to make them believe. Right, so I feel like that's kind of what we're doing. Okay, so this is what I mean by that. As we, spent our, we spend our lives creating this perception of our own greatness, we want to create this image of ourselves that when other people look at us, they'll think that we're something great. And this is what Jesus does with that perception. He walks over and he pulls back the curtain and he's like, are you done? And he looks at us like kind of cranking our little thing and like yelling into our mic. And he's like, I, I see you. You're not actually that great. Can I talk to you about the real thing? Can I talk to you about real greatness. And that's what he does with the disciples is he pulls them into this intimate moment. They're in this house that maybe was Peter's house and they're maybe there with just Peter and his family and he sits down, which is kind of weird for us because in our culture, a, the teacher stands up and then everybody else sits. But, it, but in that culture, the teacher, when he wanted to teach an important life lesson, he would sit down and then everybody would gather around him. And so he's having this, this moment with his disciples where they're kind of sitting around him and I got to imagine that as, as he's teaching them, he's thinking about his coming death and how they're going to respond and what he wants them to understand about what he's going to be and what he wants them to be. And verse 35 says, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. You want to be first? Be last Winners finish last. And everything in me hates that. Right? Because it's counterintuitive to everything that I know. Throughout my entire life, throughout your entire life, you've been told that if you want to be great, if you want significance in your life, you've got to earn it. You've got to be something. You've got to create a name for yourself. You've got to win. You've got to be skilled at something. And that's your path to greatness, but I want to tell you, you've been lied to. You've built your life around a lie. Jesus is saying, you want to be great? Humble yourself. It's the path to true 
greatness. Brian Regan's a comedian. He talks about the me monster. You guys know the me monster? Where like you're trying, to, you're trying to tell a story, right? And the person's just sitting there and they're listening, but they're not really listening. They're just waiting to talk. So they're kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but you, me, me, I'm up here. We become those type of people. We become me monsters where we want to make everything about ourselves. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to steal glory. We become glory thieves. We're trying to steal the glory of God and make it our own. That's what it means to be proud. And that's why God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Pursue a demotion. Lower yourself. So let me ask this. What's the marker of a truly humble person? What's the marker of a truly humble person? True humility is self-forgetfulness that leads to service. Self-forgetfulness that leads to service. So let me unpack that. First, self-forgetfulness. Tim Keller talks about, about this, and I think it's an important idea, and he says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not degrading yourself. You're, you're a child of God, okay? It's not to degrade yourself, but it's just to think about yourself less often. In other words, humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. But I think there's kind of two ditches that we can fall into on either side of self-forgetfulness. The first one is what we typically think of when we think of pride. It's that, it's that me monster. It's that constant obsession with self. It's the compulsive need to be praised. And so for you, what that looks like is you build this life where you'll be successful and you'll be praised. A lot of you, that's your career. And so what ends up happening is you sacrifice your family on the altar of your career because you need to be praised. Or you're, you, you analyze the perception of your family's name and wealth right? And you're, you're freaked out about what your house looks like. You got to have that Pinterest house. And if anybody's coming over and there's a little bit of a mess, what happens? Everybody go. And everybody's running around the house. They're throwing stuff in closets. You got to make it look clean. Why? Because you've built this perception about who you are and you got to maintain that perception. The second ditch that we can fall into on the other end, the other way of self-focus can come out is insecurity. And you got to be careful of this one. Because it kind of looks like humility, but it's actually sneaky pride because it's self-focus, right? So, so this is overanalyzing every conversation that, you're, that you have and being nervous about, you know, what did they think about that interaction? What are they thinking about me? Did they, did they like me? Did I do something wrong? It's adding like three layers of subtext to everything that happens. This is what they said, but maybe they actually meant this and maybe they don't actually like me because of this. You, you're super introspective, you're constantly looking at yourself and analyzing where you're standing before other people are or where you're standing before God is and you never feel like you actually kind of meet up to the standard. And it feels humble, but what's the centerpiece of your life? It's you. It's you. Real humility is not thinking very highly of yourself or thinking really lowly of yourself, but forgetting about yourself. And when you forget about yourself, you're freed up to focus on other people. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The expression of humility is service. Humility isn't just a disposition in your heart. It is that. It is how you think about the world and how you think about yourself. But it's also action. It plays out to the benefit of other people. It plays out in service. And here's what I think is so awesome about service is that anyone can be great. If service is greatness, then anyone can be great. You don't have to have hyper-biblical knowledge. You don't have to be this theologian. You don't have to be a perfect Christian, but you can choose to serve. So, so Martin Luther King actually has a great quote about this that I wanted to share with you. He says this, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. So the beauty of lowliness, of, of, of true greatness, is that it's accessible to any Christian. And, and a lot of the way that we do that is we just have to make practical decisions to serve, You have to change your, your mentality, your mindset from service being optional or, or above and beyond to the normal life of a Christian. It's that simple thing like doing the dishes, shoveling your neighbor's snow, being last in line instead of first in line, going out of your way to figure out what people's needs are and then trying to figure out how to meet them. You just have to start making those decisions to serve. But it also requires intentionality. Right, if, if true greatness, if a life of following Jesus is serving, don't you need a plan for how you're going to serve? Right, you have a plan for how you're going to be built up in your faith. You know you need to come to church, you need to be in community, you need to read your Bible. What's your game plan for how you're going to serve people for the rest of your life? So my wife, Jessamy, works at a, a whey protein company. And they had some extra whey protein, so she brought it home. So on my fridge is this giant barrel of, it's called combat protein. And I've been a little offended at how many people are confused by it. People walk in and they're sitting there and they look at the whey protein and then they look at me and then they look back at the protein and go, why do you have protein? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> dang it. This has genuinely happened like four or five times. So let's say that I told you that my game plan for life was to become a bodybuilder. I'm well on my way, but I'm going to become a bodybuilder, right? And, and so you're like, okay, what's, what's your plan for becoming a bodybuilder? How are you going to do this? And I'd be like, I'm going to eat a bunch of protein. I'm just going to eat raw protein, like not even in water. I'm just going to dump the protein in. And you'd be like, all right, like what's your, what's your workout plan? No, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to eat protein. I'm going to crack raw eggs into a cup. I'm going to drink it. I'm going to, I'm going to just buff up. No, but what's your workout plan? Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to eat protein. How's that going to go for me? Am I going to get buff because I'm sitting there eating protein? No. If you carb load and then you don't run, you're just going to get fatter. <laughs> That's kind of what we're like as Christians. We, we, we come to church, and, and notice, okay, don't get mad at me. I'm saying we, like this is, I've been committed, committed convicted by this this week. We, we, we come to church, 
We get taught the word of God and we eat and eat and eat on the scripture and on community and on relationships and then we have no game plan for what we're gonna do with all of that knowledge and all of that love that's been poured into us. What's your game plan for how you're gonna leverage your life to serve other people? And I wanna, I wanna suggest this to you. I think God has built into you a way to do that. It's called spiritual gifts. Now, please don't get all weird about this. Don't go home and take like five spiritual gift assessments online and rank out all of your spiritual gifts and freak out about what your specific gift is. Like, I, that's not what I'm talking about. But what, think about it like this. Where does your passion and your purpose and your skill come together? Right, so what, what are you passionate about and it's got to actually have a purpose. It can't be something dumb. It's got to be something that impacts other people. And what are you relatively skilled at? Figure out how to go do that thing. But, but here's what I want to encourage you for. It, you have to be able to answer the question, what did God make you to do? What did he put you on this earth to get done? And, and it's and it's great if you say to fulfill the Great Commission and be a part of a local church. That's so good. That's so true. But it's like getting hired at a company but not having a job description. You can't just say, I work at 3M. You have to be the person that works at 3M and like, I don't know, makes the sticky notes or I should have thought of something. But like, you have to have a specific job description, right? So what did God individually make you to do? J.D. Greer talks about this in a book that's been really influential in my life uh, it's called Jesus Continued. I'd recommend it. And he talks about not, not knowing and not using your spiritual gifts is actually a form of quenching the Holy Spirit. Because God has given you unique abilities and unique gifts that the Holy Spirit lights on fire in order for you to serve other people. And you have to know, what did God put you on this earth to do? And please don't leave here without at least trying to make some sort of a game plan for that. Like on your way home, ask each other that question. In connection group, ask each other that question and make a game plan for how you're gonna leverage your spiritual gifts to bless other people. Have a personal ministry philosophy. So for me, what that looks like is, okay, what are my gifts? What are the, the people that God has put in my life and how can I bring those two together? And so my, my gifts and even just my, my position as a pastor God's built me for relationships and to try and spiritually invest in people. And so we made a list of the spheres of influence that we have, our, our connection group, the church as a whole, our, our neighbors, Salt Company and the Salt Company leaders, and we listed out, we literally listed out people, and then we have days of the week where we're trying to spend with each of those people. Do we do that all the time? No, I kind of forget where their list is, and I should find it and do more of it, but we're trying. We're trying to be intentional. For you, maybe it's not as much the relationships as just physical service, right? How can you leverage that for the kingdom of God? How can you leverage that to serve and bless other people? What's your personal ministry strategy? But, but I also wanna say, you are doing this, church. I, I, I watched you rally around the Stevensons. Within hours, there were hundreds of people praying. Meals for weeks were taken care of. There was people showing up at the hospital, people babysitting their kids. You rallied around them, and you were the body of Christ to them. You're doing it. Our, our, our college students 
we threw out the idea of what if we adopted an elementary school in town? And what if there were Christian college students walking the halls of elementary schools and mentoring kids? And they, they essentially went running back to the table to sign up. And so soon we're going to have Christian college students being a mentor to kids who need a role model in their life. And by the way, if you're, if you're a college student and you want to do that, come talk to me, specifically men. The ladies are outpacing you right now. Come, come talk to me, which I think I just motivated you by improper greatness, but um, <laughs> just realizing that. But come talk to me. Come serve. You guys are doing it. But, but some of you feel a little bit disappointed in what your role in this church has been because you got excited about being a part of a church plant and then you showed up and you kind of don't know what to do. And some of that is our fault. I need to get better at figuring out how to help you know what your role in this church is and to provide outlets and trainings to make that happen. And we want to do that long term. But realistically, what a lot of you are looking for is a program to jump into. And programs are fine, but what you want is this program that you can jump into and then someone tells you what to go do. But right now, like, we have a small staff team. We're a small church. We buy, uh, we on purpose are trying to maintain simplicity. And so instead of waiting, what if you said, this is what God made me to do. I'm gonna go do it. Will you support me in that? What did God make you to do? Go do it. Don't wait to be told. Now some of you in hearing this are saying, that's nice, man. But I've got like three kids hanging off me like a jungle gym every day. How am I supposed to do this? Well, I want you to listen to the thing that Jesus says next. Verse 36. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this is remarkable what Jesus is doing. So this is not a child-centric culture like ours is. Children were a little bit of an inconvenience. That, that's maybe a little strong, but they weren't the centerpiece of what people did. And so even fathers would not bend down and wrap up a child in public. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a prominent teacher, and he bends down, and he just grabs a kid and holds him in his arms and says, you know what? I care about this. This is the type of faith that you need, and these are the type of people that you need to impact. Insignificant people who can't really offer anything back. You love them you serve them. Jesus just elevated the seemingly insignificant and degrading to greatness. So here's what that means. Parents, and, and actually specifically moms, I want to talk to you because I think everything that you do is at times kind of downgraded in our culture. And I, I want you to hear this. Here's what that means. Wiping snot off your kid's face for the third time in two minutes, that's greatness. Holding a crying baby instead of sleeping, that's greatness. Trying to be patient with a kid that's disobedient and doesn't understand your love for them and doesn't understand that you have what's best for them in their mind, you're, you're demonstrating Jesus to the world. And even if nobody else sees it, he does. He's watching you and he loves it. 
He loves your service to him. It matters. What you're doing matters. Choose to listen to the God who loves you instead of what your feelings say. You're not insignificant. It matters. Because you're demonstrating the character of Jesus to the world and to that child. So to summarize, the life of greatness is the freedom of self-forgetfulness that leads to service. But how do we actually do that? That sounds fine, but then you're gonna go live normal lives this week and you're not going to want to. I was writing this sermon and I walked out of my office that goes directly into the kitchen and my wife was standing there making freezer meals and then she said, hey, do you wanna help me with these freezer meals? No. I don't, like, no, why would I, no. And, and I started to talk my way out of it and then I had this, like, you're teaching on this, dude. Like, you're, you're gonna feel like a schmuck if you don't help with this. Schmuck's a word that I like. I encourage you to say it. Um, but I don't, I don't want to be this. I wanna be self-serving. That's what's in my nature. So how do you actually get the power to live in the freedom of self-forgetfulness? How do you forget about yourself when you have all of these needs and desires? Here's how you live in the power of self-forgetfulness. Is when you have someone who will sacrifice all of their needs to fulfill yours. Jesus Christ gave up everything to serve you, to satisfy you, to fulfill you. And when you're tempted towards pride, walk to the foot of the cross and see your Savior hanging there, looking at you. You did that to him. I did that to him. Nothing cuts you down to size like Calvary. But when he looks at you, it's not with anger in his eyes, it's with love. Drew and Melissa's love for Jude is illogical. I know that sounds weird. It's illogical. Jude isn't giving them anything back. He, he doesn't have the ability to talk to them, to establish relationship with them, to care for their needs in any way. Realistically, the only thing that Jude is giving them right now is, is pain. And I know that's not his fault, okay? But in his weakness, that's what he's giving to them. And you know what they're giving to him? Relentless love. Unconditional love. That's what it's like to know Jesus. We offer him nothing. We can't serve him. There's nothing that he doesn't have that we have to give to him. The only thing that we offer him is weakness and repeated pain. And Jesus just loves us. He pursues us. He wants us. And he provides for us in our every need. What we can't provide for ourselves in our weakness, he gives to us unconditionally. How can you forget about yourself when you have the God of the universe worrying about you and taking care of you and caring for you? That's the way that you can walk away from selfishness and pride is when a God walked away from, from any attempt at pride that he could have to serve and bless you. That's the character of the king. It's to know you, to love you, to serve 
you. And there's this crazy truth that we have that I wanted to point out to you. And I actually uh, just, just realized this for the first time the last couple weeks. It's been blowing my mind. It's from Luke 12. And in Luke 12, Jesus talks about, he, well, he gives a parable about what it looks like to wait for him, to wait for him to return, to come back. And it's this parable about this master that leaves and he leaves his servants in the home and he says, be ready, be ready for me to return. And I want you to see a little bit of a detail of what happens when the master comes back home. Luke 12, 37 says this, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will come and serve them. Listen, who's serving who in this analogy? Truly I say to you, he, who's he? The master will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, will serve you for eternity. One of the analogies about what heaven is is that it's like a wedding feast and Jesus is the groom and his bride is the church. Imagine if you were at a wedding and the groom stood up and put on an apron and started waiting tables for you and then went in the back and cleaned the dishes. That's what heaven will be like. Christianity is not primarily about you serving God. It's about him serving you. You're gonna walk into heaven and Jesus Christ is gonna sit you down at a table and put your feet up on a stool and he's gonna serve you a feast for the rest of eternity. Why? Because he will have his glory. Because Jesus will be great. And true greatness comes through service. His service is a revelation of divine glory. So when you sacrificially serve, you get a glimpse, a little taste of glory, of greatness. And in the process, you get wrapped up into a story that's greater than you. You live for the glory of your name and you might get a little bit of recognition here. You die to your name to serve others and you'll experience the glory of God. That's the nature of the upside down kingdom. You live for significance now, you'll experience insignificance in eternity. But if you lower yourself now, you'll be raised to significance and glory and the king of the universe will serve you a feast of his joy forever. Let me pray. King Jesus, that doesn't make any sense to me. It, it feels almost wrong to say that you will serve me, that you will serve us in eternity, but that's the ridiculousness of who you are. That we couldn't serve ourselves and so you came to serve us. And that's not... It, it's not like an aside to your character. It's, it's not stepping away from your glory to serve. It's actually an example of your glory. It's an overflow of your character, of your nature. It's your nature to serve because you're great. And what, what do we do with that? Like how, how, can we, how can we offer you anything in response to that? What could 
How can we thank you enough for that? And we can't, but we want to try. We, we want to praise you because you deserve it. And so would you help us to, to praise you and to live the Christian life out of an overflow of your service for us first and foremost, not thinking that we can offer you anything, but just out, out of a, an overflow of service for you because you first served us. And Jesus, also would you help us to be a people who sacrificially serve by your power, who are known in the city as people who don't only care for themselves, but care for the city. Would you give people ideas, creative ideas about how to, how to serve this city and how to serve this group of people, how to, how to be a blessing to other people, to leverage the gifts that you've given them to impact another life? Would you give a vision for that and help us to actually do it? And thanks now for the opportunity to just enjoy you, to enjoy the service that you've offered to us on the cross and the gospel. We love you. Amen.